If there is one word that is always relevant around New Year's time, it's the word resolution. Now, when most of us hear that word, I imagine our minds instantly race to those lists of intentions that we hastily compile towards the end of December or the start of January, those, those lists of new commitments that we hope will define and guide our, our way of practical living in the course of the new year. And I will return to that sense of the word in a moment, but I wanted to explore with you at least two other connotations to this word resolution that I think hold particular significance for us as we step forward into the future that is yet to come. The first meaning might come into focus a bit better through the use of a simple illustration. Several Christmases ago, my wife received as a gift a, a simple telescope. I wish you could see the look of excitement on her face as she raced inside that first December evening and begged me to come on out to the patio and, and look into the eyepiece of that telescope and, and see what she had seen. The glorious sight of the moon. It would be a stretch to say that we could actually make out the, the footprints of Neil Armstrong, though we looked hard. But the reality was that, that, that even that simple black tube had a set of lenses in it that, that provided a resolution, a clarity of vision that allowed us to, to make out contours and, and craters that simply took our breath away. I had never looked through a telescope before. And gazing through that lens was a transforming experience of sorts, at least for me. It made definite and real what had only been a somewhat diffuse and distant light to me. It changed the, the vague mystery of that distant phenomenon into a more personal and purer wonder and a clearer hope in a strange sense than I'd ever felt before, for I was left longing for the day when, if not Amy or, or, or I, then perhaps our children or maybe even our grandchildren might actually come to walk on the soil of that place of which we'd now caught a greater glimpse. You know, in a sense, with the start of every new year comes a longing for resolution like that. For a clearer vision. Something like that. The turn of the calendar somehow heightens the sensibility that I suppose is there somewhat dormant or subconscious all the year long to, to not only look back at the past and take stock, but to, 
to gaze out into the future and try to perceive more clearly what lies there. That may explain why at the, at the turn of the new year so many of our publications and television programs take to speculation on the future. I picked up a copy of U.S. News and World Report recently. And in an article, or in this, this magazine whose title is Outlook 2000, A New Age of Innovation, Breaking the Genetic Code, Bold Ideas from Big Thinkers, are all kinds of forecasts that purport to give us some, some clear resolution picture of what is to come. Now, if you believe what is said here, then the next 50 years are going to be filled with some remarkable innovations. We're going to see developments in, in our lifestyle that are going to make even the world of the Jetsons look something like the world of the Flintstones. By 2010, they're now promising the affluent among us will actually be able to do what has been long promised, and that is to purchase a personal sky car that can take off and land in your driveway like a helicopter and fly at the rate of 350 miles per hour. Now, you think that's wild. Ten years from now, remember, five years ago we hardly heard of the Internet. And even the less affluent or well-heeled will be able to, to, to board aircraft that will fly at a super-atmospheric height and turn a trip from China to Beijing into a simple jot as if going from O'Hare to Minneapolis. Within the next decade, semiconductors are likely to give away to to quantum and even DNA-based microprocessors that are going to open up a whole new era of what they call nanotechnology. That is of microscopic machines. So small that they could travel through the human bloodstream. That will revolutionize everything from climate control and security in your home to the way the, the brain functions in people afflicted with mental illness. According to futurists, 50 years from now, there will be organically grown or bionic replacements for virtually every component of the human body. And genetic engineering is going to eradicate most, if not all, diseases. And radically slow the aging process. So that 100 years from now, we're looking at 200-year lifespans. And we're going to see the development of, of wonderfully nutritious crops that can grow in even the most harsh third-world environments, eradicating world hunger. There will be voice-activated, hand-held e-tablets and computer glasses, mark my word, you'll see them within the next year or two, that will replace the PC.
and give people access anywhere and everywhere they go to information and services that will make today's communications web and internet offerings seem like the telegraph by comparison. Now, whether that view of the future is compelling and exciting to you or just a little bit frightening, or maybe a lot frightening. I urge us to remember that that human telescopes rarely have the finest resolution, at least rarely live up to all of their promises. And it's just entirely possible that these predictions are no sharper than the Hubble telescope proved to be. But even if they are sharp, it's crucial that you and I make sure that we move into the future regularly gazing through the lens of an instrument whose resolution has proved remarkably clear and consistent through the centuries. In the book of Revelation, God himself reveals what we can definitely expect the future to hold. And the answer is resolution in another sense altogether. God's promise is that no matter what else happens, whatever good, whatever bad transpires in the decades to come, in the meantime, history will be inexorably moving toward a time when the greatest themes of human life are finally resolved, tied off, completed perfectly fulfilled. And the Apostle John was given a glimpse through the telescope, as it were, through the lens of, of a divine revelation at the contours of that final resolution, and he describes it in the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, he says. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. The sea symbolized for the ancients uh, the chaos and the, the alienation that separated people from one another and, and people from God, in a sense. And there was no longer any sea, he writes. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. What John is, is describing is a moment in human history when God will bring about a decisive change 
a revolution in human affairs. Human civilization as we now know it and as it will develop until that moment comes will pass away. And a new order, symbolized here by the idea of the holy city, the new Jerusalem, will take its place. The Bible does not make clear what role, if any, all of the technological and other advances that happen in the meantime will have in the life of this new civilization. They may be swept away altogether. They may go the way of the the dodo and the typewriter. Or they may play some part in the new era. What is clear is that this new season of history will have at least four characteristics to it, the Bible says. First, it will be a time when those who have yearned above all else for intimacy with God will find that longing resolved beyond their wildest dreams. The Apostle John puts it in these terms. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. Do you get a sense of the emphasis, the repetition, the cascade of images, the total intimacy that is to come? Where God is no longer some distant light, but a presence that just fills our vision, transforms our heart, illumines our mind. Secondly, it will be a time when there will be a complete resolution of all of the conflicts and all of the struggles that stain the creation now with suffering. John says, God will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death. There will be no more mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. The old order that was defined by the reality of all those things, pockmarked, cratered by the reality of all those things, will pass away. Thirdly, it will be a time when those who have thirsted after God's way of life, the Bible calls it righteousness, will have their longing wonderfully resolved to. Jesus himself speaks. To him who is thirsty, I will give to drink without cost. Eternal champagne without cost, freely given from the spring of the water of life itself. And never will we have found our thirst 
so slaked, our, our lives so refreshed is when He pours His Spirit into us and fills us with the water of His life. He who overcomes will inherit all this, promises Jesus. And I will be His God. They will be my children. But those who have thirsted after other than the living water, those who have sought to persistently slake their thirst with pleasure or prestige or, or power or any of the other self-consuming cups the world offers will find themselves in that last time, in that new era, drinking a different kind of water. The cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, the Bible says, their place will be in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death, the Bible says, presumably referring to the death of the soul. separated from the living water of God by their own choice. Fourthly and finally, the coming of the new Jerusalem will be a time when those who have loved and served God's Lamb, Jesus Christ, will have their yearning for a final place of security and rest, of warmth and beauty, resolved like nothing this world has ever seen. Do you remember those images from the Millennium Eve, from all over the world? Do you recall the sight of Paris and of London and Rome and, and Sydney and Las Vegas and Chicago and all of those other majestic cities of the world? Do you remember the magnificent buildings illumined there and the raving joy there and the brilliant fireworks there? Well, those places are all together like nothing more than cardboard shacks illumined by the light of a wet sparkler compared to the surpassing glory of the habitat. God is preparing as a home for the family of the Lamb. At least that's what we see through the telescope. Keep in mind that John's telescopic view here of this place is only symbolic, but, but even the symbolic nature of them is mind-boggling. To, to, just to translate some of the Greek measurements here. This new city is 1,960,000 miles square. A little larger than L.A., I'd say. You've been to the top of the Sears Tower? The new city 
is 14,000 miles high. And its walls are, are 200 feet thick. And it's built of the finest materials known to human imagination. And, and frankly, as you discovered, some materials that, that haven't even found their way into human imagination except on the pages of those books. But above all else, it is a place of glorious, glorious light. Truly the city of lights. The city of light. The light. And John says, I, I did not see a temple in the city. Because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it. For the glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb, the light of the world, is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light. And the kings of the earth will gladly bring their splendor into it. And on no day will the gates of this city ever be shut, for there will be no night. No threat there. My friends, that's where the future's going. That's where it winds up. And this simple black instrument God's Word provides us with a lens that has the resolution we need at least to see some of its contours. And in that future, our longing for intimacy with God, our yearning for an end to the struggles and the the suffering of this world, our rasping after true righteousness and genuine justice, our longing for an everlasting home, all find their resolution in what God has planned for those who love Him and are called according to His purposes. Make no mistake about it. There will be tribulations. And there will be struggles on the path to that future. And we'll talk about some of those next week. But let me touch in closing on one last sense of the word that is this message's title and do so by posing a question to you. If you truly believed that these happenings and not the latest technologies would ultimately come to define the future of humanity, what sorts of practical resolutions might you make now as you headed toward that future? For instance, what could you do to deepen your intimacy with the God 
with whom one day you'll be totally intimate. What, what struggles and, and, and in whose sufferings might you act now as an agent of God's peace and mercy? An agent of that which will one day fully come. And what change of, of behavior in the week ahead, in this year to come, might indicate more fully that you truly thirst after righteousness in your workplace, in your school, and your social circle, and your household. And, and, and how, knowing the home to which you will finally be going, might you choose to invest a bit differently any of your resources here? May God grant us the wisdom to perceive and the will to pursue just the next step or two on that path. To him be all the glory in Christ Jesus and in his church forevermore. Amen.